Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Judas and the Black Messiah, the 2021 film starring Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 96%, and the critics' consensus reads, an electrifying dramatization of historical events, Judas and the Black Messiah is a forceful condemnation of racial injustice and a major triumph for its director and stars. Let me introduce my guests. Sam Lysenko, you were the production designer on the film. Welcome back to Below the Line. Great to be here, thank you. And joining us as well for the first time is Jeremy Woolsey. Jeremy, you were the art director. Glad you could join us. Great, thanks for having me. Now as a reminder to listeners, Below the Line is now on IMDB, the internet movie database, so it's easy to cross-reference the credits of my guests. Before we dive into the specifics of this project, talk to me a little bit about your roles. What is the relationship between the art director and the production designer? The understanding of creative problem solving is comparable between the two positions, but I think one is, uh, in the case of the production designer, an attempt to uh, distill aesthetic information, both from the source material and from the crew feedback, and to facilitate communication between uh, the art department and the other departments and the director in service of the script, whereas the art directional role, and I'm sure Jeremy could speak to this with more specificity, is one of um, an understanding of best practices for execution of those creative concepts. So I think between the two, you have a holistic approach towards aesthetic problem solving, but I think that it's a different sort of brain wiring in terms of how best to move that discussion forward. And a bit of that execution Sam was referring to certainly involves money, schedule, time, interface with every single department, and really taking everything that Sam and uh, you know brings to me and brings to our department and executing it, and literally executing it through the process. And you know, it's uh, it's a great challenge. Every film is different, and uh, especially when you're working with someone for the first time. You don't have a sense of their rhythm until a couple of weeks in, but uh, with Sam and myself, it, it seemed to flow pretty well right off the bat. But that job is really taking the vision and uh, turn into real physical sets and getting in and out of locations. You know, a lot of scheduling and money. So, Jeremy, as you alluded to there, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, this is the first time the two of you have worked together. That's correct. We had never met, never worked together. A production manager I worked with years ago out of the blue, contacted me, said, are you available? And I happened to be just available and uh, told me about the project and then uh, mentioned Sam's name. We got on the phone for maybe 10 minutes and I was on a plane to Cleveland probably four or five days later. And, and God willing, we'll never work together again. <laughs> um, I, would, I, would like to, I would like to clarify that it, it, it's not to say that art direction is not an aesthetic driven craft. It is very artisanal and incorporates not just an understanding of the business end of uh, production, physical production, but also like material sciences and understanding the relationships between various sub departments and the amount of effort that is um, that has to go into executing those various skill sets. So it for me, in terms of expounding aesthetic stuff, there's a certain level of assumption on my part that the art director's position is one of a creative crutch because I can ask more blown out questions about architectural detail or uh, materials or finishes that normally would be outside of my purview and then talk with some 
level of assumed specificity to a director that sounds impressive when in actuality it was really just Jeremy who had the answer. Mm, that's very generous, but yes, that's, uh, that is true. And so Sam, it sounds like you were involved with the project a matter of days, matter of weeks before uh, Jeremy came on. Talk to me about how this involvement began. Uh, yeah, so I, for for anyone in my position, I think that the, there's this kind of critical mass moment when it shifts from ebullient conversations with the director and the location manager about how we're going to start to tackle these large-scale problems. And then I think it, if effectively the job is being done well, then the director just kind of assumes, okay, well, we'll do this. We'll, we'll put a wall there. We'll fix that. And then you can actually really start to get into the nitty-gritty with with your art director about what these spaces need to look and feel like um so i i don't think i had very much time i had i had booked the job in a very short prep period prior to getting on a plane myself i think i booked it on a wednesday and i was on a plane the following monday or something and so i got down to cleveland and i, I really only spent about I want to say a week and a half or two weeks with the location manager before jeremy came in in fact the uh our production office had been ravaged by uh, a burst pipe or something. So it was still in the process of being constructed around us when we started prepping the movie. I, I think there was like, there was no ceiling uh, and there was a horrible mold that needed to be abated while we were getting, getting to know each other and really starting to break down the script. But it was a very, it was a very short period of me being by myself kind of hemming and hawing before I, I had uh, goose on my six. Yeah, and what that allowed us to was to spend more time scouting. I, I don't normally get to scout locations as much, but uh, we sort of jumped in and got to see stuff together, and uh, it was it was a sort of a fun process, you know, and putting together a support team when we neither one of us had worked together. So some people we you know were kind of not stuck with, but uh, encouraged to hire, which. You know, our construction coordinator came from Pittsburgh. He was fantastic. Uh, we brought a painter from New Orleans who I had worked with. And we just had a sort of a, a talented ragtag group that we put together and hit the ground quickly. I got there, Sam downloaded me, and we, we were off and running, checking out locations. So it was a really, really immersive, quick process, which, you know, was great. Yeah, and, and also... Um... Have, you know, by default shooting in Cleveland is a city in which there's a very low day population comparatively to how, at one time, how, how big the city was. So it's very easy to get around in a short clip. So there were, there were more moments on this film than I've had on others in which I could, I could text Jeremy and be like, come to the other side of town. I need you in 10 minutes. You got to check out this thing. It's really cool. Or can you do this in my stead so I can go by the shop or whatever it would wind up being. And we were able to bounce around with a level of cinematic immunity that would be more on par with shooting on a, on a back lot. We really, we had the, the, the full city at our, our disposal, which was really an, an incredible experience. Now it goes without saying that one of the major production design challenges on this film is recreating a Chicago of a specific time period. So how did that challenge come together with the selection of Cleveland as the place to film? Well, it, you know, it was, it was a, a born slightly out of problem solving based on budgetary requirements. Uh, and I think there was kind of, there were, there were broad discussions both before I was engaged with the film. And then also as we really began the very beginnings of, of prep before I got on that plane, which were very truncated of basically like, where are we going to go? 
as far as options that were on the table were concerned, there had been some preliminary scouts with the director to Chicago. And not only was it a more expensive city than Ohio, especially factoring in the tax incentive, but additionally, the majority of the sections of town that we'd want to shoot in have had a sustaining amount of of income over the last uh, 50, 60 years, which has dynamically impacted the look of the town, whereas Cleveland is the epitome of kind of Ohio Rust Belt. So there was ample municipal architecture that was extant that was really fortuitous for what we needed out of it based on the fact that, you know, we were really kind of problem solving exterior locations as opposed to making major critical adaptations. Elements of municipal architecture that were extant, like pay coin parking meters and sodium vapor heads on lampposts, even, you know, things like uh, uh, fire hydrants hadn't really had any dynamic changes for the last 60 years. So we were a little bit freer to explore uh, municipal space than we would have been in, in other cities that have that have maintained some semblance of a middle class without without falling into the trappings of, of you know, post 70s economic despair. It, even in a town like Pittsburgh, there, there have been major improvement efforts made over especially the last 20 years that would have been a little prohibitive for us. And it, it just became, you know, this this tapestry of shit we had to try to problem solve. And I think that shooting in Cleveland alleviated a lot of that for us. And that translated to a lot of our interiors as well. You know, there were ample buildings that had, that were turnkey abandoned for at least 30 years that got us 60% of the way there. And then we could concentrate on where we were spending money uh, in order to effectively get, get visual impact, I think. Biden said with the challenge that there's not, to my knowledge, a large film crew base in Cleveland. So you mentioned bringing in folks from other cities. Was that up and down your crew or were those folks then training local folks to sort of? Yeah, I I think for a designer, the onus of responsibility when you're shooting in a, a city that is not your local city shifts from myself to uh to production a little bit in order to help gather phone numbers and resources that are that are more either locally based or are willing to travel to your remote destination, especially since I'm coming from New York, where in particular, the pension and welfare benefits are much higher. Uh, It's more cost efficient for a producer to start looking further afield at third coast cities to bring in crew members. I think Ohio is a state that probably has one solid film crew standing and there happen to be two movies in Cleveland alone at that time. And so we, you know, I think every, everybody was, was a little thin in terms of uh, local availability. Uh, although we wound up pulling in this real firecracker of a draftsman uh, who became our kind of, uh, I, I think he would fancy himself a, a Cleveland liaison when in actual value is more just like having an alien in the backseat the whole time. But, but we, love, we, we love him very much. Um, so I think, especially with Jeremy, in regards to being able to bring in people from New Orleans and Atlanta and especially Pittsburgh, because Pittsburgh is close enough that local crew are, are moderately excited to work Cleveland because they can go home on the weekends. It was also an experience in which we were all coming from various walks of life, all with the stated mission of doing justice to this history, but all simultaneously exploring this new city for the first time for all of us. And I think when you're looking through a space like that with that kind of critical lens, all of a sudden what 
would to a local become arcane and ignorable becomes wildly more interesting and much more deserving of of your attention in terms of whether or not you should in- encapsulate it on film. I think yeah, I'm sure Jeremy, you can you you probably agree to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. I had worked in Cleveland years ago, but on a very small film, and I was excited to go. I think it's a very underrated city, and for what you know. For instance, we bonded. This art department is one of the closest art departments I've ever been a part of. It was a mix of personalities, uh, similar age groups, but we would, you know, we would embrace some of the grittiness of the city, you know, obviously for work, but Sam found this bowling alley that we all seemed to fall in love with. And we would just keep falling in love with these weird little restaurants or little nooks. And it it really helped uh, form a cohesive art department. And uh, it, it showed in the way we all worked together. And so, I mean, the whole film was, was like that. I've never been a part of a film where it seemed like every single person was making the same movie. It showed in the research coming out of our department, coming out of all, most departments, but we really dove in and uh, just really got into it. We had some, some, a great graphic artist who recreated the newspapers and signage, and we really wanted to nail it the best we could based off of the uh, research imagery we had. As far as bringing people in, um, you know, I was, Sam was gracious enough to hire uh, one of my favorite scenic painters named Claire Hessig out of uh, New Orleans, uh, sight unseen. Uh, He trusted my judgment and she was willing and she came up and she was able to hire a few Cleveland locals who worked out. And, you know, we pulled from Cincinnati. We were brought a few people from New Orleans. So it was really a, uh, just a nice collection of getting to know different people, different regions. And, um, you know, they pulled through nicely. They did a great job. We brought a graphic designer in from Los Angeles, who was a Pittsburgh native that uh, a couple of the Pittsburgh crew had already known. And we had several people from Pittsburgh, our art coordinator, our set decorator. So it was a real mix of uh, different regions and different personalities, but uh, it really, really clicked, I believe. Especially for people who work in the business, I think that the delineation between working in your home city and going on location is such that your only critical responsibility when you're away is to do justice to this thing you've been hired to because it, it's not like you, uh, your, your house plants are there or your friends or family. You are literally charged only with the responsibility of doing this thing and then going back to the hotel and then coming back and doing it the next day. So when you have this incredible crew of people who have learned the craft in different markets and different ways and methodologies towards approach and they're all doing an away job, all staying in a hotel together, I think there is... There's this kind of work hard, play hard mentality. And when you pair that with the cultural importance of this, of this story that we were attempting to do justice to, the ample visual evidence of what occurred to use as reference point, so much so that certain things didn't need to be discussed ad nauseum because there were, there were photos to, to base things off of. And the fact that Cleveland is such an accessible city, both in day-to-day travel and also just like the willingness of the city to open itself up to this film crew it was kind of a perfect storm where it was it was like a you know knockdown rock and roll road show where we really just tore it up uh with you know under the guise of of trying our best and i think i think everybody really brought it brought it with them how long was the actual shoot 
1,000 days. <laughs> no. Uh, 40, 44 days. Yeah, it's like 40, yeah, 44 days. And, uh, and it got progressively colder as, as we were getting to the finish line. I remember our last day of photography, I think it was 12 degrees while the sun was up. And then that was a night shoot for the shooting company on frozen ground outside and it, it must've dropped, dropped below five, five or 10 degrees below zero that night. It was, it was really, it was getting very bitter, very quickly. Um, but it was kind of that last push we all wanted to get through. And to be fair, we, we opened set up for about four minutes and then left. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We were, we were, we were riding high in our, in yeah. our, in our warm we were hugging vehicles. and saying goodbye and we were out of there. It was it was too much for me, especially being from New Orleans, and uh, I'm not. I had never really been in that kind of, and I wasn't dressed properly. The whole last night was a mess uh, <laughs> on my end. But we said goodbye and uh, we left um, left them to it, and that was yeah. it. There was no particular was need for either of you to be there over the course no, of it was the, it, last night. It was the big refinery shootout sequence, and we had been problem solving that location from early September, right? We, that we found that location fairly early on and we knew that there were considerations to be made to be able to shoot that sequence 360. And we had done, I think, more critical run-throughs of that location with cinematography and special effects and stunts than I have ever encountered on, on a location-based shoot. I think we did like probably somewhere in the range of eight to 10 full walk through scouts of that location with the full company just to make sure that everything was in order. And part of that was, you know, serious conversations about it's going to be fucking cold by the time we get here. So let's, let's figure all this shit out now. I think that that was, that was a driving factor. So I think we were kind of over-prepared for that last sequence by the time it, it came up in photography. What other sequences or locations on this shoot provided memorable challenges for you guys? I was blown away and I'm going to give credit where it's due. This was, this was really Jeremy's baby, but the, um, after the police, uh, uh, set fire to black Panther headquarters, uh, the entirety of the process of rebuilding was cheated in a building of comparable architecture on a higher floor, no less, with a little CG help down the street from our, our hero location. Uh, and I was very worried about how to accurately portray that space. And Jeremy and, and our assistant art director, Geza, the, uh, the animal, the local animal from Cleveland, uh, the two of them really, really uh, just blew me away with that cheat. There is no way, even as, a, as an educated viewer, that I watch that sequence and don't emotionally connect that, that burnt out hull of, uh, of an interior space with with the space we, we saw previously in the movie that I think the cheat is seamless other than the fact that the ceilings are a little lower. That, that worked out quite well. Um, mm -hmm. that, that was a very memorable location for me. And Claire's scenic work. Oh my gosh. The entire yeah. scenic department. They really, that's a, it's a very convincing interior um, yeah. that could have easily gone south real quick. Yep. Agreed. We also had a lot of fun scouting several, you know, interesting locations to sort of navigate the, having access to and what we could do in there, but we found our, our location manager, maybe Sam, I'm, I wasn't a part of finding it, but this great bar that was from the opening scene, fantastic place. That was a challenge to kind of turn that facade into something. Uh, the interior was absolutely wonderful, uh, but that was fun to meet just the characters. It was a bit of a 
Sam, was it a speakeasy or I can't, I can't remember what the. It, so there, there was this incredible, the, the interior of that bar was pretty much turnkey and the exterior facade of the building had been clad in vinyl siding, presumably in the eighties. And the ground level was, you know, fat painted with colors that felt a little too contemporary. There was nothing about, and at, at some point they had repaved within the last 10 years um, so there was nothing about it on the exterior at ground level that really sung as uh, period bar. And it was the opening of the film. So I was really worried about it. But across the street was a glazed tile exterior bar that would have been perfect if the interior had, hadn't been gutted. It was an abandoned space. And that was our first, I think that was our first exterior location. We got a construction and scenic started working on that first. So we just said, yeah. can we make this thing look like the building across the street from it? And yeah, it, it was also, it was on our drive from the office to the shop. Uh, so on a daily basis, we could just see, you know, crew members just buzzing along, slowly putting up all the cladding and getting that thing ready. And that, that, was, that was our first day of photography. It was our first exterior location. And it was kind of the first major attempt at a move for the art department, in addition to being the first scene of the movie. And it, it worked out quite well, I, I think. Um, the, the neon sign was, uh, was a, a figment that was pure fabrication and then we we tried to maintain as much of that interior as we could and just kind of thinned it out to uh remove any anachronistic uh dressing that that, that wasn't working for us yeah and i remember that first day we were trying to problem solve the crosswalks because we didn't have we didn't have city city control over the walk don't walk signs which had been converted to led uh iconography instead of the sentence case lettering and so we had come up with these incredible inlays that we would just illegally pop the covers off and slap them up right before we shot uh <laughs> that were that were like milky opaque so that as it was blinking it, it sort of it worked for us it worked it, yeah as, as long as it said don't walk it was working um yeah that was the that was the first push that was our first push that location and how much prep time was there going to, we talk about driving by every day to see this come together. How much prep time did you guys have in Cleveland before filming got underway? I think hammers and hammers were probably swinging for about three weeks, I want to say, but we were, we were pretty loaded um, in terms of exterior pieces happening in rapid succession because we had, we had that bar. We had our hero exterior black Panther block, um, mm -hmm. including the headquarters and some, critical adaptations that needed to occur on the interior of that. And we also had this kind of looming driving, this tracking shot with a 360 pan as the car made a U-turn on a wholly other street. And they were all happening within the first two and a half weeks of photography. And so we, we, were, we were really pushing the construction crew time-wise. I think it was, it was a little tight, um, but all of those things were happening almost simultaneously. So there was always, at any point, there was always a standing crew kind of swinging hammers, I think uh, probably starting three weeks out and then running all the way until I think the second week of photography, our core started to move into our, uh, our ramshackle in, in stage space to start building uh, Fred Hampton's interior apartment. I think I got that timing right. It was something like that. Yeah, yeah. Overall, I, I don't recall more than eight weeks of prep uh, and then maybe 10. I don't recall exactly, but we jumped in there and we were, we were generating drawings within a week, week and a half to at least to 
to uh, review and get some prelims out and start really hatching a plan um, with the AD department. But the ramshackle stage certainly was a challenge because it was it wasn't a stage. It was a warehouse with limited clearance, uh, not a lot of room around the set. I mean, we were hugging whatever imaginary fire line lane there was, but it was a, um, you know, basically recreating uh, the Fred Hampton apartment. And that was a, it was a very interesting and fulfilling challenge to um, go through all the files and really try to understand and get that footprint to scale of what it really was with a few little tweaks for camera, but so a lot of the uh, research we pulled was from the court case, and I believe from the O'Neill sketch, the actual, that kind of sort of helped us initially until we were able to dig further and find uh, more technical documents that really gave us the footprint of the apartment. So we started with that with a 3D model almost straight away. I think that was the first thing that we had a remote set designer work on while we dealt with some location work, but uh, we wanted to get that you know, sort of sorted out because that was our truly biggest stage build. And uh, that was an imp- obviously a very important set. Yeah. And, and between, uh, you know, we had, we had sort of ramped construction up over the course of photography. So I think when they first started and had just finished, you know, setting up shop, they were, they were doing Chicago uh, themed police barricades for crowd control and exterior police station signage. And then by the time we got into the apartment, um, they were such a well-oiled machine that between their efforts, so construction and scenic and, and set deck, other than the front facing facade wall uh, in, our, in the film, it's bay windows to match our exterior location. But I think in, in, in the actual apartment, it was just on a flat plane. Other than that one wall, uh, it's, it's darn near an exact replica of what the apartment looked like the night he was shot down the the sticks of furniture. I mean, set deck in particular, Becky really nailed every single piece. Uh, She recreated the mattress and bedspread, tracked down duplicates of the same chairs that were in evidence in in the crime scene photographs, the bullet holes that construction laid in with special effects to squib are generally for the most part in the exact locations that bullet holes appeared in, in the evidence photos. So I think, um, you know, in terms of a level of, of specificity and execution, like you, you cannot get much closer to accurately portraying history than how efficient they were in, in recreating that interior apartment space. Now this goal to, to recreate and be accurate, obviously that can be very expensive and there's a good portion of the audience that isn't gonna recognize that. What was really driving it on this film? Both of you have mentioned it multiple times. And so I wonder, is that coming from Shaka King's vision from the beginning? Or is that something that collaboratively just everyone decided this was the best way to tell the story? Yeah, I mean, I think it it's probably more born out of the understanding. We were we were making a Warner Brothers action movie that would be enjoyable to watch. And I think that the the level of sensitivity towards the true events and the fact that we knew we were making something digestible out of it um, kind of became a sort of guiding factor in uh, our our understanding that the social responsibility to do the story justice trumped all. I don't know if we ever verbalized it as a team, but I, I definitely think that there was a sense in the office that um, we can have fun doing this as long as we're doing these people justice historically. And the story itself is so heartbreaking and so underappreciated in the course of American history that I think to do anything less would have been a disservice to, to what actually occurred. Um, and I, th- I think everybody felt that way too. I, I don't think that there was ever a, 
a need to verbalize it. You know, all of the kind of um, the positive press around the execution and appreciation for the film theatrically, uh, even down to the fact that it's the first film uh, to be nominated with all black producers, let alone the first major film to ever be made with all black, black producers. These were not daily conversations on set. I think the daily conversations were more, how do we do this story justice and how do we make an entertaining film? And not to mention we had the Hampton family on site. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Production. You know, when uh, Mama Akua, uh, Fred's widow is there, uh, you're damned not to try your best to make it feel right and real for her and you know in 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 some capacity as much as it seems that this is a battle waged in history um there are not just living remnants but there are people still fighting this every day and so uh, who am i some hipster kid from new york to decide the aesthetic value set of the of the struggles that they live through i think by assuming a level of social responsibility to be as accurate as possible it foregoes the inevitability of having to have conversations about whether or not you're doing it justice. You are doing it justice. And therefore the conversation becomes, how can we also make this a good movie simultaneously? Sam, you've been on the show before to review our Oscar nominees, just mm -hmm. sort of in general terms of production design and, and, and sort of the eye you bring to it. I think last year you were just getting ready to go start this film. Um, and I was surprised this year, given how well the movie's reviewed and the other categories where it was nominated, including cinematography and best picture, that it didn't also earn a nod for production design. Not to bring up a sore spot, but, but you son of that a must bitch. sting a little bit. <laughs> this film, so much effort into it, it surprises me that it, it didn't make the short list. Yeah, I well, thank you for saying that. Um, I think uh, I'm of... I'm, I'm of Two opinions. Uh, the first is that I think it was underappreciated by the time voting had commenced for the Art Directors Guild Awards and that probably prohibited allocation of certain funds for publicity for an Academy Awards push uh, on, the, on the business side of things that may have hurt our chances towards a, a design nomination. But uh, more importantly, I think as a credit to everyone who worked with me in the art department in particular, but also to my fucking self, because I did a great job. Uh, I think it's important to remember that oftentimes a movie gets nominated for production design because people are noticing the design. And I think that if our main tenet, uh, our, our modus operandi in terms of approach was to do service and justice to a historical level of accuracy, when you compound that with the fact that it got nominated for Best Picture and Best Cinematography, what that tells me is it's a great looking movie that people love to watch and they weren't thinking about design. And so I think that if that's the case, then the design was efficient and didn't do a disservice to the story by being noticeable, even though it, it takes place in 1969. Uh, so if you can get lost in the fiction of the film and enjoy it for what it is enough so much that it gets nominated for Best Picture, then... I, I see that as a bigger win than necessarily getting an individual design nomination. And I'm only saying that because I wasn't nominated, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think I, I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly contented with the reaction of the movie and, uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's fine that it didn't happen. Well, I've appreciated you guys coming on and giving us some more details about all the work that went into 
making this as accurate and enjoyable film as it is. Thank both you guys for taking time and joining us around the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you're enjoying the current season. Your feedback is always welcome. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. Every episode of the podcast is now on IMDb. So if you'd like to learn more about my guests, you can easily cross-reference their podcast appearances and film credits. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. As always, I appreciate you listening. Be safe out there. I think, um, Jeremy, I'm catching your mic here. So if you can try and, I don't know, position the phone out so there's a little more drag away from your clothes, that might be something to watch for. Okay. Is that better? I think so. Okay. That'd be good. We'll just, and just lose the shirt. Ha, 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 ha.